Greetings, Fernando Alcoholic. I'm going to be reading The Choosing the River of Denial from Alcoholic Anonymous Big Book. She finally realized that when she enjoyed her drink, she couldn't control it. And when she controlled it, she couldn't enjoy it. Denial is the most cunning, baffling, powerful part of our disease, the disease of alcoholism. When I look back now, it's hard to imagine I didn't see a problem with my drinking. But instead of seeing the truth, when all of the yets, as in that hasn't happened to me yet, started happening, I just kept lowering my standards. Dad was an alcoholic, and my mother drank throughout her pregnancy, but I don't blame my parents for my alcoholism. Kids with a lot of worse upbringing than mine did not turn out alcoholics, while some that had it a lot better did. In fact, I stopped wondering why me. A long time ago, it's like a man standing on a bridge in the middle of a river with his pants on fire, wondering why his pants are on fire. He doesn't ma- it doesn't matter, just jump in the water. And that's exactly what I did with AA. Once I finally crossed the river of denial, I grew up feeling as if I was the only one keeping my family together. This compounded by the fear of not being good enough was a lot of pressure for a little girl. Everything changed with my first drink at the age of 16. All the fear, shyness, and disease evaporated with the first burning swallow of bourbon straight from the bottle during a liquor cabinet raid at a slumber party. I got drunk, blackout, threw up, had dry heat, was sick to death. The next day, I knew I would do it again. For the first time, I felt part of a group without having to be perfect to get approval. I went through college on scholarship, work-study programs, and student loans. Classes and work kept me too busy to do much drinking. Plus, I was engaged to a boy who was not an alcoholic. However, I broke off our relationship during my senior year after discovering drug, sex, and rock and roll, companions to my best friend, alcohol. I proceeded to explore all that the late 60s and early 70s offered. After backpacking around Europe, I decided to settle in a large city. Well, I made it all right to full-blown alcoholism. A big city is a great place to be an alcoholic. Nobody notices. Three martini luncheons, drink after work, and a nightcap at the corner bar was just a normal day. And didn't everyone have blackouts? I used to joke about how great blackouts were because you saved so much time in transit. One minute you're here, the next minute you're there. In retrospect, making jokes, just laughing it off, helped solidify my unfaltering denial. Another trick was selecting companions who drank just a little bit more than I did. Then I could always point to their problem. One such companion led to my first arrest. If the driver of the car had only pulled over when the police lights flashed, we would have been fine. If, when I had particularly talked our way out of it, the driver had kept his mouth shut, we would have been fine. But no, he started babbling about how he was in rehab. I got off with a misdemeanor, and for years I completely discounted the arrest because it was all his fault. I simply ignored that I had been drinking all the day. 
One morning while I was at work, a hospital called, telling me to get there quickly. My father was there, dying of alcoholism. He was 60. I had seen him in hospitals before, but this time was different. With stomach sorely distended, swollen with fluids, his non-functioning kidneys and liver could no longer process, he lingered for three weeks. Alcoholic death is very painful and slow. Seeing him die of alcoholism convinced me I could never become an alcoholic. I knew too much about the disease, had too much self-knowledge to ever fall prey. I shipped his body back home without attending the funeral. I could not even help my grandmother bury her only son, because by then I was inextricably involved in an affair mirrored in sex and alcohol. Plummeting into the pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization that the relationship became, I had my first drunk driving arrest. It terrified me. I could have killed someone driving in a total blackout. I came to handing my driver's license to the patrolman. I swore it would never happen again. Three months later, it happened again. What I didn't know then was that when I put alcohol in my body, I'm powerless over how much and with whom I drink. All good intentions drown in denial. I remember joking about how most people spent their entire lives without ever seeing the inside of a jail. And here, a woman of my stature had been arrested three times, but I would think I'd never really done a hard time, never actually spent the night in jail. Then I met Mr. Wrong, my husband-to-be, and all that changed. I spent my wedding night in jail like every other time. However, it wasn't my fault. There we were, still in our wedding clothes. If he had just kept his mouth shut after the police arrived, we would have been fine. I had them convinced that he had attacked the valet because our wedding money was missing. Actually, he thought the valet had stolen the marijuana we were going to smoke. In reality, I was so drunk, I had lost it. During the interrogation of the, of the valet in the restaurant parking lot, my husband became so violent, the officers put him in the back of the patrol car. When he tried to kick out the rear window, the policeman re- retaliated. I pleaded with the officer as the second policeman arrived and both bride and groom were taken to jail. It was then that the stolen marijuana cigarettes were discovered to my horror in central booking as the catalog my belongings. I was arrested for three felonies, including drunk and disorderly and two misdemeanors, but it was all my husband's fault. I had practically nothing to do with it. He had a drinking problem. I stayed in that abusive marriage for nearly seven years and continued to focus on his problem. Toward the end of the marriage, in my misguided attempts to set a good example for him, plus he was drinking too much of my vodka. I mandated no booze in the house. Still, why should I be denied a cocktail after returning home from a stressful day at the office just because he had a problem? So I began hiding my vodka in the bedroom and still did not see anything wrong with this behavior. He was my problem. I accepted a transfer with a promotion. Yes, my professional life was still climbing. Shortly after the divorce, now I was sure my problems were over, except that I brought me with me. Once alone in a new place, my drinking really took off. I did not have to be a good example anymore. For the first time, 
I realized that perhaps my drinking was getting a bit out of hand, but I knew you'd drink too if you had my stress. Recent divorce, new home, new job, didn't know anyone, and and acknowledged progressive disease that was destroying me. Finally, I made some friends who drank just as like I did. Our drinking was disguised as fishing trips and chili cookouts, but they were really excuses for drinking for weekend binges. After a day's drinking disguise of softball, I nicked an old woman's fender driving home. Of course, it was not my fault. She pulled out in front of me. That the accident occurred at dusk and I had been drinking since 10 a.m. had nothing to do with it. My alcoholism had taken me to such depths of denial and heights of arrogance that I waited for the people for the police so they know it was her fault too. Well, it didn't take them long to figure it out. Once again, pulled from the car, handcuffed behind my back, I was taken to jail. But it wasn't my fault. The old bra should have been not even being allowed on the road, I told myself. She was my problem. The judge sent me to six months in Alcoholic Anonymous, and I was outraged. By now, I had been arrested five times, but all I could see was a hard partier, not an alcoholic. Didn't you people know the difference? So I started going to those stupid meetings and identified myself as an alcoholic so you signed my court card, even though I couldn't possibly be an alcoholic. I had a six-figure income, owned my own home, I had a car phone, I used ice cubes, for God's sake, Everyone knows an alcoholic, at least one that had to go to AA, is a skid row bum in a dirty raincoat drinking from a brown paper bag. So each time you read that part in chapter 5 of the big book that says, if you had decided you want what we have and are willing to go to anything to get it, my ears close. You You had the disease of alcoholism, and the last thing I wanted was to be an alcoholic. Eventually, you talked about my feelings in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous until I could no longer close my eyes. I heard women, beautiful, successful women in recovery, talk about the things they had done while drinking, and I would think, I did that, or I did worse than that. Then I began to see the miracles that happened only in AA. People who would nearly crawl in the door, sick and broken, and who in a few weeks for meetings and not drinking one day at a time would get their help back, find a little job and friends who really cared, and then discovered a God in their lives. But the most compelling part of AA, the part that made me want to try this sober thing, was the laughter, the pure joy of the laughter that I heard only from sober alcoholics. Still, the thought of getting sober terrified me. I hated the woman I had become a compulsive, obsessive daily drinker, not dressing on weekends, always afraid of running out of alcohol. I started thinking about a drink by noon and would leave the office earlier and earlier or promising myself that I wouldn't drink that night. I invariably find myself in front of the refrigerator with a drink in my hand, vowing, tomorrow I won't drink tomorrow. I despise all of it. But at least it was familiar. I had no idea what sobriety felt like, and I could not imagine life without alcohol. 
I had reached a terrifying jumping off point where I couldn't drink anymore, but I just couldn't not drink. For almost 23 years, I had done something nearly every day of my life to change reality to one degree or another, yet I had to try this sober thing. To this day, I'm amazed at people who get sober before the holidays. I couldn't even attempt it until after the Super Bowl. One last blowout party when I swore I wouldn't get drunk. When I put alcohol in my body, I lose the ability to choose how much I drank. And Super Bowl Sunday that year was no different. I ended up on someone's couch instead of my own bed and was sick to death all the next day at work. That week, I had to go to a hockey game. It was a work event, so I tried really watching my drinking, consuming only two large cups of beer, which for me wasn't even enough to catch a bus. And that was the beginning of my spiritual awakening. Sitting near the ice, frustrated and pondering the fact that two tall beers don't give me any relief, something in my head, and I know it wasn't me, said, so why bother? At that moment, I knew what the big book meant about the great obsession of every abnormal drinker being so, being to somehow, someday, control and enjoy his drinking. On Super Bowl Sunday, when I enjoyed it, I couldn't control it. And at the hockey game, when I controlled it, I couldn't enjoy it. There was no more denying that I was an alcoholic. What an, what an epiphany. I went to a meeting of Alcoholic Anonymous the next night, knowing I wanted what you had. I sat in the cold metal chair just as I had for the past five months and read step one on the wall for the hundredth time. But this time I asked with all my heart for God to help me and a strange thing happened. A physical sensation came over me like a wave of pure energy and I felt the presence of God in that dingy little room. I went home that night, and for the first time in years, I did not have to open the cupboard with a half-gallon jug of vodka in it. Not that that night or any night since. God has restored me to sanity, and I took step two the very moment I surrendered and accepted my powerlessness over alcohol and the unmanageability of my life. I attended at least one meeting every day, empty ashtrays, wash cup, coffee pots, and on the day I took a 30-day chip, a friend took me to an AA get-together. I was in absolute awe of the power of 2,000-plus sober alcoholics holding hands saying the final prayer together, and I wanted to stay sober more than I wanted life itself. Returning home, I begged God on my knees to help me stay sober one more day. I told God to take the house, take the job, take everything if that's what needed to be for me to stay sober. That day, I learned two things, the real meaning of step three, and to always be careful what I pray for. (laughs) After five months of sobriety, I lost a six-figure job with the firm. The wreckage of my past had caught up with me, and I was out of work for a year. That job would have been lost whether I was drunk or sober, but thank goodness I was sober or I probably would have killed myself. When I was drinking, the prestige of the job was my self-work, the only thing that made me worth loving. Now I am starting to love myself because AAs had unconditional love 
me until I could. AAs had unconditionally loved me until I could. At five months, I realized that the world might never build a shrine to the fact that I was sober. I understood that it was not the world's job to understand my disease. Rather, it was my job to work my program and not drink no matter what. At nine months of sobriety, I lost a big house that I bought just to prove to you I couldn't possibly be an alcoholic. In between five and nine months, my house was robbed. I had a biopsy on my cervix and I had my heart broken. And the miracle of all miracles was that I didn't have to drink over any of it. This from a woman who had to drink over all of it. I was so unique and so arrogant when I got there. I think God knew that he had to show me early on that there was nothing a drink would make better. He showed me that his love and the power of the steps and the fellowship could keep me from picking up a drink one day at a time, sometimes one hour at a time. No matter what, a drink would not bring back the job, the house, or the man, so why bother? I found everything I had ever looked for in Alcoholic Anonymous. I used to thank God for putting AA in my life. Now I thank AA for putting God in my life. I found my tribe, the social architect that fulfills my every need for camaraderie and convivility. I learned how to live. When I asked how I could find self-esteem, you told me, by doing worthwhile acts. You explained the big book had no chapters title, Into Thinking or Into Feeling, only Into Action. I found plenty of opportunity for action. In AA, I could be just as busy and helpful to others as I wanted to be as a sober woman in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was never a joiner, but I got deeply involved in AA service because you told me if I did, I would never have to drink again. You said as long as I put AA first in my life, everything that I put second would be first class. This has proved to be true over me over and over again. So I continue to put AA in God first and everything I ever lost was returned many times over. The career that I lost had been restored with even greater success. The house that I lost has been replaced by a townhouse that is just the right size for me. So here I am, sober, successful, serene, just a few of the gifts of the program for surrendering, suiting up and showing up for life every day. Good days and bad days. Reality is a wild ride and I wouldn't miss it for the world. I don't question how this program works. I trust in my God, stay involved in AA service, go to lots of meetings, work with others, and practice the principles of the step to the best of my willingness each day. I don't know which of these steps keep me sober, and I'm not about to try to find out. It worked for quite a few days now, so I think I'll try it again tomorrow. Beautiful, beautiful, wonderful words of life. Incredible story. Intelligence, very well organized. Deeply ingrained in the solutions. A very beautiful story. It's kind of funny. I text somebody after coming from the meeting. The reason I'm reading this story, I just came from the meeting and we read about five pages of it. And we stopped. And I, I make it a goal to go over what we read this morning at the meeting. 
So here it is. But the many funny thing about it, I text somebody, and this is what I said. I said, "Wow, one of our members is making application to become a traffic instructor for DUI's attendings." You know, this member used to earn well over a hundred k, and all these situations that happened to him. But now he's looking at how God can best use him, not only being a secretary, but also uh, signing up to 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 use himself to help others wake up. He said that the original instructor was so boring, so sad that he paid money to go to a, a traffic school, and it was so ridiculous that he's going to do something about it. He's signing up to become an instructor. I said, these are miracles before our very eyes. Look what our higher power has done to a lot of us. He has placed us in high-paying positions. He has allowed us to dream as big as we want to dream. How high can we go? And I say, give me the island of Kauai. I'll take that for my inheritance. Amen. So that's the reading. And I have a short testimony of mine after this of what I shared at the park after reading half the story. Thank you much. May God richly bless you. And I was truly amazed and excited. I hope you are too about reading this story and listening to it. God bless you. Thank you. Fernando alcoholic good morning everyone that's an incredible title crossing the river of denial and we were talking Philip and I and uh, before the meeting we're talking about and I started thinking as we were reading it that even years later after 10 years being an AA my mind's telling me am I an alcoholic am I coming you know why why is it the denial is so strong you know and then when she went on to say, you know, all that matter was, uh, all she can pay attention was to drinking and sex and brawling and all that stuff. Couldn't get away from all that. Um, you know, and I go, wow, it reminds me, I am an alcoholic, you know. All I wanted was more booze and have, you know, and not respect the lady and just have my way. You know, I like when the book says we come in with a lot of a hundred forms of fears and, uh, and and denials and so forth, and and the and program of Akhaknamis starts to put us together right side up. I like right here where she says uh, all the fear, shyness, and disease evaporated with my first drink, the swallow of bourbon. Um, and it and it reminds me when I came into AA that all the uh, all the fear, denial, shyness, and disease and, and uh, evaporated with the AA meetings with the laughter and the joy. And then I realized I was missing the uh, literature. My soul was missing literature. And it was, it was missing the friendships, the laughter. It was missing the prayers of God. You know, I can hook up with my higher power and hope and faith came back. And then I started believing in the process that when I would get squirrely over there, I said, I need to get back over here so I can stay in line and not um, cause all that craziness. 
all over again. Because the alcohol did say to me that it had wisdom, it had understanding, that it had power, and they could put things in perspective. And, and it was a lie. Alcoholic Anonymous gave me a, a reprieve to look back and see all the close calls, all the wreckage, all the nonsense, and, and all the hurt feelings, you know. I like right here, I can relate to this. She finally realized that when she enjoyed her drinking, she couldn't control it. And when she controlled it, she couldn't enjoy it. And that's truth for me. I couldn't enjoy the drink anymore. Crossing the river denial, um, it's a beautiful thing. To, you know, once we identify the problem, the problem was uh, alcohol, then I, I, instead of feeling bad and sorry for the problem, I started thanking God that I see the problem now. now. Now we can attack it. You know, so in any problem, thank you, God. You know, they say the United States has 5 to 10% more incarcerated people than any other country in the world. And... <laughs> A lot of crazies up there. And I was in that bathroom in that cell right now. And I looked at it and I said, well, you should have been in here years. This should have been your home. I remember being locked up. With, there's no there's no divider between the toilet and the piss and everything there. You know, when there's two guys in there, the guy just sits there and takes the crap right in front of you, you know. And and it's just hell to be in there in, in, in the cell. And God saved me from that. One more push, more and more drink, more thing. It was only because of a considerate attorney that he convinced the judge to send me here. So uh, I'm very happy to be here. Like Marshall said, you know, the friendship here incredible. And, and then the miracles are incredible too, where God is lining you up to, to be of service. You know, some of them have talents that we haven't been used before. Now they're going to be used because they're in God's hands. It's like a, a musical instrument. They, you know, and through through humor and laughter, I was changed on my on that meeting. That's what healed me: the humor, and the laughter, and living life in the now. Um, and that became my new addiction. You know, meetings, drinking them, cluck 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 cluck. So I'm very happy to be here, fully clothed, my right mind. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I have won the lottery. I got 25 tons of gold today. Thank you. March 1997, a remarkable sensation. I was one of those AA newcomers who shaved, shaft at the God parts of the 12 steps. I thought it was beneath my dignity to believe in God. As a budding alcoholic in my early 20s, I had become infatuated with existentialism a philosophy that contemplates the role of the individual standing alone in an observed world. Existentialism seemed to dignify my feelings of isolation and uniqueness and to impart a kind of a tragic poignancy to the drunken impulsiveness. I like to think of as acts of free choice. When I entered Alcoholic Anonymous, I desperately wanted to stop drinking and turn my life around 
but I was pretty sure I didn't want to help the help of God. However, during my first days in AA, I was weary of poking holes in the program, lest the whole fabric rip apart. I suspected that if I were to allow myself to make even one exception for myself, such as determining that I would ignore the God steps, I might open myself to a justification to drink. Therefore, I determined to find a way to live with the whole AA program, including God. But what does step three mean? Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. How on earth did a person make such a decision? Turning my will and my life over sounded like an enormously complicated procedure. And even if I could figure out how it was done, what would become of me if I complied? I worried that following God's will, I end up doing something brave and self-sacrificing and utterly repellent. The 12th and 12 said that the only thing required to take step three was a key called willingness. I thought I was willing, imagining myself holding this elusive key. I waited for transformation and felt nothing. The book also compared one's awareness of a higher power to electricity flowing, hidden and potent through the circuit of a house, but I was unable either to feel the movement of this force or to find a switch that would activate it in my life. The key finally turned, the electricity finally surged in a way so quiet and simple I could have consciously willed it. I could never have consciously willed it. Again, the key finally turned, the electricity finally surged in a way so quiet and simple I could never have consciously willed it. At the time I got sober, I had been living with a man for several years. Our relationship had been in trouble for quite a while, and my new sobriety only aggravated our problems, for he felt threatened by my growing reliance on AA, and I was uncomfortable with his continued drinking. I would wake in the middle of the night and discover that he had not come home, and I would fly into two-pronged panic that he had died in a terrible accident, or that he was with someone else. I laid in bed with my eyes wide open, my heart racing until I heard the key in the lock. One night, being typically, I woke, realized he was not home and felt the fear surface. Then mounting altogether, different different happened. I understood that I did not have to follow that route. Without even thinking about what I was doing, I said, not exactly to God, but definitely not just to myself. Whatever happens, let me accept it. Instantly, a wave of calm washed over me. The panic evaporated. I knew that from the core of my being that because I was sober and was not going to drink over the situation, I was fine. I trusted something. I fell asleep. That was 16 years ago. When I woke up the next morning, I knew I had taken step three at last, and I was filled with joy. Step three had continued to manifest in my life in ways that are ever more surprising and profound. For, as the 12th and 12 promises, once we have placed the key of willingness in the lock and experienced the first opening of the door, we find that we can always open it some more. Shortly after turning it over that night, I broke up with the man I was living with. A few years later, I married a man I met in AA. I have stayed sober and continue to go to meetings. 
And interesting enough, following a spiritual path has become increasingly essential to me. Contrary to my fear that taking step three would condemn me to a life of brave self-sacrifice, I find instead that it frees me to think and act as my truest self. My work, which is in, is writing and leading wilderness strips, helps people explore the connection between nature and spirituality. In following this path, my own journey has flown along several tributaries. Ultimately, however, the entire process came down to step three. I stay sober and turn my will and life over to the care of God as I understand this wise and radiant entity which is manifested in my own soul. There is an update in the story. One defect of character is batted for years with a bitter jealousy of other writers whom I perceive to be more successful than I. I had worked hard to let go of this chronic ache, but it continues to be easily provoked. A few weeks ago, I did a guided imagery session in which I saw the black bitter bile of professional jealousy being removed from me by a kindly monkey who placed it in the earth where this dissolved and became harmless. A couple of days later, my young stepson called to say that his first book had been accepted for publication. I, wa- I waited for the grip of jealousy, but astonishingly felt nothing but happiness for his success. The next day, I reflected on this phenomenon. As I drove along the highway in my car, I was thinking about how inner change seems to come only when we truly are ready for it. And then I heard very clearly a voice, Are you finally ready to let go and live your destiny? An old lingering part of me that couldn't pass up the opportunity to bargain for what I want rose up and I thought, maybe if I say yes, I'll become a famous author. Yes, I said to the voice. No, it said. Are you ready to let go and give your life to God? As often as my higher power had addressed itself to me directly in my years of sobriety, it had never before referred to itself as God. Certainly, I had never called it that. The fact that it now had did so shook me mightily. How could I argue? Yes, I said simply. I'm ready. I felt then a remarkable sensation. It was as if my entire body was being emptied of what it it no longer needed and was instantly filled with something else. The sensation was of light and energy, a kind of tingling current moving through me. Here was yet further evidence that AA's miracles can always deepen and crystallize if you don't think, practice the steps, and trust the process. Again, here was yet further evidence that AA's miracles can always deepen and crystallize if you don't drink. Practice the steps and trust the process. As long as I am willing to do what I am called to do in any given moment and to abandon the effort to control the results of my actions, then I am following the path that my higher power called it God, good orderly direction, the soul, the life force, or anything else has set out for me. This is from Treble, Trevi, J. Thompson, Pennsylvania. Wow, very cognitive, heavy-duty story. Our next story is called Wait for the Pitch from March 2001. It was the summer of 1999, and in order to cover the cost of the October wedding, my fiancé and I planned, I was working as a Mater, Mater E.D. babysitting 
booze house in a fancy gin joint. The money was more than fair, but I hated the job. I was in my six-year sobriety. I knew all about the anchor, the actor noted in the big book, and his desire to control the elements of production. I was familiar with the key of willingness, and I was aware of the nature of a determined and persistent trial. In my opinion, I had pinned the third step to the, the mat. Still, I suffered tremendously anxiety when I wondered how we were going to pay for our wedding, how I could stomach another night at that job, and how we were going to manage after we got married. Deep in the throes of this apprehension, a friend who, who's well-placed in the corporate world offered me four free tickets to an afternoon Yankees game. They were playing my favorite team, the Tigers and the seats were right before their dugout behind third base. It was just the break I needed, and I gladly took the tickets. But consternation came in the heels of my acceptance. None of my buddies could take an afternoon to low at the ballpark with me. I was stuck with three great tickets, and I didn't know what to do with them. I resolved to turn them over to the one who has all power. I got down on my knees, and I said, I would trust him to figure out what to do with those tickets. Riding the number five train to Yankee Stadium, I seized up my prospects. Nobody felt right. I continued to place my trust in my higher power. I encountered a man with no two children, a boy and a girl, at the box office. Three baseball fans, three tickets, and I asked the dad if he wanted them. I couldn't accept any money freely give what had been freely given, but I wanted I warned him that the kids that they be stuck with me for the afternoon. I promised to be on my best behavior and politely declined his beer offer. A soda I thought would be fine. I got what I came for. I was tense and contest in a late inning the Tigers put a man on first and the next batter took off with the pitch. He lined the ball right feel and the runner who'd gotten a terrific jump was rounding second the yankees right fielder came up with the ball cleanly but he rushed his throw to third it launched in the coach's box kicked off the railing in front of us and caroomed just over our heads a vicious scramble ensued the little boy got showered with beer but his dad emerged with the ball he handed it to his son soaked but happy the proud new owner of a major league baseball. A Yankees beat writer led off his column the next day with a throwing error, the beer-drenched boy and the dad who retrieved the ball. Reading the reporter's account, I realized that God was the one who brought all, the, all this together. It spread out in front of him through me. A dad saved some money a little boy wanted a souvenir, and a newspaper guy found a lead for his report because I had trusted that God would show me how to act in this simple situation. The Tigers, truly awful that year, beat the non-to-be World Series champion Yankees. Our wedding was a memorable, elegant event for which we received all the help that we needed. I had retired from the gin mill work forever, God willing, Today, I face difficulties that make distasteful jobs and the distribution of free tickets pale in comparison. My greatest challenges are before me, but my experience with the third step, even in the smallest matters, gives me the courage to meet whatever lies ahead 24 hours a time. 
from Pete P. Manhattan, New York. Thank you, Pete. That was an awesome story. Hmm. I, too, was in that same situation. I once had three tickets. Someone had given me four tickets, and I went to the game. And, uh... No, I think I bought a ticket. I bought a ticket from... uh, And the lady had two kids and her, and she was a drinker. And the first thing she did at the Los Angeles Danger Stadium, the first thing she did, she went, she goes, I'll be right back. She left the, the unruly kids with me, and it looked like I was the father. And the kids were throwing popcorn at the people's back down down the thing, and and their their fun was just picking on people, you know, throwing things around. And I, I had to actually shoo them and quiet them down and tell them, hey, stop that. Finally, the lady comes back and she's tipsy and then she's got to go for another beer and another beer. And then, and I found out that she was in the program at one time. So I started talking to her about the program stuff and she is not there. And I said, how'd you guys get here? She goes, well, I took the bus. I had to take number nine. I had to take number 12 and this and that. And now it's late in the day. The crowds are all over the place, and I had inquire. I said, "Well, you're going to take the bus back." I said, "You're, you're zonker. You're drunk, and you got these two kids." And I said, "I'll take you back home." And what a mistake that was. She she threatened that if I didn't stop at the 7-Eleven to get her a beer, uh, she would th- throw herself out. And sure enough, I pulled at 7-Eleven, got her a beer, and. Uh, and proceeded to find her house. Kids were asleep in the back, and finally I, they lived up in the hills somewhere. It's just remarkable how they got to the Los Angeles Stadium from where they lived. And I said, man, they must they could have got home at one in the morning if I wouldn't help them out. Anyway, I was the happiest man alive when they got off my car. It was like, I'll never again buy a discount ticket and try to save money. That was my story from uh, Dodger Stadium. I don't even know who they played. All I know is popcorn was flying all over the place, and that was an unruly father. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening in.